Christ as he's presented to us in this gospel, and then you move on to the stories. But there is so much depth and so much packed into what John says in these opening verses that we will intend to spend the rest of the month just here. It's always been a unique problem pastorally to fly over so much and then try to bring it to the people because it's so good, and then they say, why is the sermon so long? (laughs) So in order to avoid that whole problem, we're only going to look at the very beginning for one whole month. And then if you still think the sermon's long, it could be. (laughs) Here is the word of God to you today. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through Him. And without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. Now the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. Now he was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh, and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, Glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And no one has ever seen God the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. This is the word of God about the word of God, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who is the word, we're told here, particularly the word that was made flesh, made flesh, incarnation, Christmas, all coming to this point in which we see Jesus Christ pulling back the veil of his humanity, to see who he was even before he entered into this world that you and I live. This passage here, looking at what we're saying is the prologue of John, is deep. It's a very deep well in which John, unlike the other Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, he's very philosophical. And I don't know if that's going to rub you the wrong way or not. But he's very simple at the same time. 
Everything John says uh, has this deep, profound simplicity. He, he uses very simple images, very simple language, that any child could read this gospel and walk away with its meaning. But if you were to meditate on it, years and years, you find that he is using double entendre and special speech in which he has layers of truth that he's unfolding about Jesus Christ. What we will do here is only look at the first three verses. That is, that in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and was God. He was in the beginning with God. And all things were made through Him. So much so that without Him, there was nothing made that has been made. These three verses point to Jesus Christ in such a way that we find a unique, remarkable principle in three. That is, that Jesus Christ is an absolute personality who is called the Word. That is, Jesus Christ is absolute, that is, unbounded, unable to be comprehended. It is something you cannot get your hands around. He's absolute. He's personal. Word. Word. Not a word or a type of word. His name is word. He's an absolute personal word. All other words are types of words. This is the only real word. This is Jesus Christ. Why is it important to say something as, and again, maybe obtuse and abstract as saying he is an absolute personality? It's important because it's true. And if it's true, it's worthy of your trust. That you would lay your heart upon him to know him the way John has described him here. Absolute personality. See, there's two great dangers when it comes to trying to say what God is or how he is true or what is truth or what is the principle that governs your life. And you find it very regularly everywhere in our culture. On the one side of the dish that you could fall into as you try to claim to say, do you know something of truth or of God, is that you can simply just say that your truth is personal. That's the language we speak of every day. It's your truth, do it your way, your spirituality, your morality, your life. So like I had a meeting earlier this week in which I had to meet somebody at a coffee shop down in Murraysville. And I was there sitting and waiting, looking out the window. And I saw a woman walking by and she was uh, dressed very well and nice shoes and a nice coat outside in the cold. But when she turned, she was just wearing a very basic t-shirt that simply said, I don't care, you do you. And that's it. Which is a great motto when you're ordering pizza. I don't care, you do you. That's awesome. You like those anchovies? Go for it. But you see, that's really not probably what the shirt was getting at. And if it was, it is the motto that everyone goes with when it comes to truth, particularly your belief of God. It's personal. Therefore, it's relative. Just you do you. Your personal belief. The other side of the ditch you could fall on is this. 
that you would say, well, my truth, it's really not my truth. It's actually the truth. I really believe there's truth out there. It's absolute, though. Therefore, just as irrelevant, because I could never comprehend it. It's too big for me. It's too broad for me. It's not just personal. It's not what, how I feel. There is real truth out there. But you see, I'm just a little amoeba. To whatever you want to call truth, it doesn't matter. Because I can't know it. I could not get my mind around it. Therefore, I have really no truth. That's not a new idea as well. A long time ago, there was a Hindu parable you might have heard of the blind man with the elephant. People say that this parable could be around 1,500 years before Christ, around the time of Moses, part in the Red Sea. On the other side of the world in the east, people were thinking about this remarkable parable of blind men trying to describe an elephant. And so one of them holds on to the elephant's leg and says, see, elephants, they're like big pillars. That's what an elephant is. Or then another blind man grabs a tail and says, no, no, you're wrong. You don't know anything. Elephants are like ropes. Another man grabs the trunk, says, no, no. Elephants are more like tree limbs, I think. Another man leaning up against the belly says, I don't know what you guys are talking about, but elephants are obviously walls. So I can't move this thing. And it's all relative. Because in their blindness, they couldn't get their hands around the elephant. They couldn't see his beginning from end. They couldn't understand him absolutely. There was no real absolute truth for these men. But you see, on both sides of the ditch, you're left with the same problem. Nothing. At the end of the day, there's really nothing that could be said. The truth of Christmas. There is a word. There is something that can be said about what is true. Fifteen hundred years later, as some Hindu was thinking about that parable, a baby was born in a manger. And he could be held. And he could be touched. John, in his first letter, says, That which we have seen, that which we have looked upon and held with our own hands, the word of life has been made manifest. In other words, the parable's wrong. There is an absolute truth who is also an absolute personality. And his name is Word. Logos. A unique name. And this is the danger. I'm sorry. I'm not apologizing for John. I'm apologizing for the fact that we have to philosophize this morning. And I have to do it. And I hope I do well. And entertains you. I don't know if you had a philosophy class in school Usually I talk to people and they say, that was the worst class I ever had. I never wanted to even try that again. I'm sorry, we're going to have to do that this morning. But I will try my best 
to bring it in such a way that you will weep for Christ for his beauty and glory. The problem of learning philosophy in a university is it's usually a secular university that hasn't found the unity in diversity. So they don't have a real university. They don't know the logos. So philosophy is stupid. It's about talking about who likes anchovies and who likes pepperoni. And that's probably why you didn't like the class. But if you know Jesus Christ, it's beautiful. That all of it makes sense. The word became flesh, he says. Before there was anything, before there was time, before there was space, all that has always been, there was first the word. The word became flesh. See, this unique name that John is using, many have pointed out, it has a well of history that he's tapping into. See, in the Hebrew way of thinking, the idea of the Word of God throughout the whole Testament that you might be most commonly familiar with is the self-disclosing power of God in His creation and redemption. That any time God wants to make Himself known, He spoke the world into existence, and therefore we look at this world and now we discern, deduce from it, His eternal power and divine nature. That all this world is showing us The word of God, which is his revelation. You want to know my mind? Let me speak to you my words. I disclose my own private thoughts via words. By analogy, God has set up the whole world this way in which everything that we can know about God has been communicated by everything we see and know, which also happens to have been made, according to Genesis 1, by his word. Yet at the same time, John is writing a gospel that is distributed throughout all the Roman Empire to Gentiles who don't know the Torah, to Greeks. And he taps into this concept that the non-biblical world knew well too, the Logos. If there was one predominant philosophy in Rome, it was Stoicism. And in Stoicism, they had this concept for the Logos, which was the interpretive rational principle for everything. And this is where I have to just apologize. I'm sorry if I lost you on that. Is that exciting? I don't know. If that's exciting for you, please have coffee with me after the service. You think, finally, we're going to start preaching about eternal rational principles. When are we going to get to that one? But that's what they would say. They were Stoics. The, t- the name uh, means stoe, which is mean porch. They were called Stoics because what they would do is they would sit out on a porch and philosophize with each other about the eternal logos and the eternal rational principle that makes all of life intelligible. And you would say, what were they doing? And I would just say, they didn't have the internet yet. (laughs) That's what you do without the internet, I guess. You sit on a porch. No one sits on porches anymore because we have the internet. But before the internet, people sat on porches, and they were called Stoics. And so they did. And this is how they talked. And John knows how they talked. Now John is talking like they talk. But he is undermining everything they've ever said. And giving them real wisdom. Actually making the philosophy class fun. He's saying there was a logos. This inner rational principle for everything. Real world example is nothing more than this. It's Christmas There's a very good chance in a few weeks you will receive a gift 
or your children receive a gift that you have to assemble. It's the gift that keeps on giving. I know it's coming my way. My daughters are in that age in which I get to read engineers' handwriting with instructions on how to build something that should, in your mind, just be so simple. But you see, that's exactly what we're talking about. What is that when you have a toy that doesn't make sense? You go to the, the Word, a written manual by the designer, the intelligible principle of the series of cheap plastic items in a box that are disheveled everywhere, and you know the screws are down your radiator right now, and you lost those, but at least you have the book, the logos, the word, to give you information to understand the whole thing. I remember as a child, maybe you have this, the story of one or two of those great uh, Christmas presents that you received that you still remember today. So mine, one I still remember was receiving a Sega video game console. And that was awesome. Remember that? Because what I would do, especially if you were sleeping over at a friend's house as a kid, you would take your game and you would bring it over to someone else's house and they'd have a VCR and you'd have to, I think that's how you spell it, you'd have to plug everything in that way. And they had a yellow, yellow cord and a blue cord and a white cord and one was for the sound and one was for the audio and there was a third one, I still don't know what that third one was for, but you'd always have to find out how it connected so that you could play the video game with sound, or sometimes it'd be sound and no screen, or it'd be screen and no sound. But you see, I have to go back to my Sega and find the instruction manual, the logos, the intention behind how this thing was made. That's all Jesus is, as far as John is explaining at this moment. Jesus is that. He made it all. He is the rational principle, the interpretive intelligibility behind everything. He is the Word. But see, no one sits on porches anymore. But that is to our advantage, at least for me, to preach this gospel to you today. Because if there was ever a time for you to hear that Jesus Christ is the Logos, it is today, in the 21st century. See, they might have sat on the porches, those Stoics, and thought about the monarch butterfly and how he migrates south and its remarkable intelligence for such a small creature. They might look to the stars and the seasons and notice every quarter and four uniform patterns the seasons keep emerging. Logos, intelligence, predictability, beautiful, beautiful information. Now, we don't sit on porches anymore, but why? Because we're too busy streaming, scrolling on the internet, streaming our movies, watching our shows, intelligence everywhere. We live in the age of information. John would say we live in the age of the logos, the age of intelligence, the age of language, the age in which artificial intelligence is scary. If there was any sermon illustration at this point, I would tell you, go home this afternoon and make a chat GTP account and bow on your knees and think of God's wisdom. If there was ever a moment to realize that God has stamped his name on everything in this world, it would have to be in our age 
We have left our porches, got out our microscopes, went down to find the molecules, and found ruling logical order in every atom. In which we look up to the heavens and find galaxies moving with a principle of intelligence that is awe-inspiring. That we have already cracked the code of our DNA and found out that our very life is coded and created by the Word. We are made by Word. How dare we say there is no God. Do you see the absurdity of denying what John has said here? That there is an eternal logos? For without the word, there is no logic for logic. Therefore, logic is illogical. That is, without the word, there is no reason for all our reasoning. Therefore, our reasoning is irrational. Without the word, there is no language for us to talk about why we have language. And therefore, our language is silenced. Do you see the point? An atheist computer programmer can make the most sophisticated language of information to do things that the human race has never done before and deny God doing it. How so? Because they know how to work logic, but they don't know why they have logic. And if they can't give a rational ground for their reason, their reason is irrational. If they would say reason is my God, and I live my life computer programming, and I only like facts and reasons, then you ask them the question, how do you give an account, a rational account for your reasoning? And they would say, I don't know. I was just born this way. And the whole world's this way. And I don't know why. Therefore, your great ivory tower of language and reason and information is built on nothing more than the shaky foundation of Babel, which you've sought a name for yourself. And not God. And now our language is jumbled and confused because we've denied the eternal logos of intelligibility. I have a friend who does surveying work. You might know him, you might not. He might be in this room, he might not. He was telling me once in which he had an experience. He was just telling me about his job and what it's like doing survey work. And <clears throat> some days it could be hard work depending on the kind of plot of land you have to find. You could be hiking for a few miles in some thick woods, looking up old trails and old maps to try to find a boundary marker or properties and parameters. That you might have to walk and hike through some thick forests or ravines, or cliffs. He said, the joy of it all, though, is you're retracing some steps of old people. He found a marker, a surveying point, which is nothing more oftentimes than a railroad spike pounded into the side of a cliff or a boulder. But he found one, he unearthed one by George Washington. Just to be one of the great rewards of doing that work, that you are retracing the steps of history that no one else gets to see. Because it's not a well-known fact that George Washington, before he served in the military and later became president, when he was a late teen and early 20s, he did surveying work for many years. And there's marks all around this world, particularly our country, I say, in which George Washington's surveying stamps, stakes in the ground, are labeled there for him. And so he came up upon one of these and found his name placard 
as he surveyed through the wilderness. But you see, that's exactly what John is saying here. That in the beginning was the Word. Now no, you cannot look at the whole world and find Jesus Christ of Nazareth, born of a baby. But you see, that's not his only name. Before he took on that name, his name has always been Logos. And you can't survey anything in his creation without finding a stake that he has laid in the ground. You might say, I can't find any surveying work of the president, George Washington. No, you can't. But before he was president, he was just George Washington. And you will find that he has put his label many places. Do you see the wisdom of God? That he has put logos on everything. That his dominion is absolute. And that's where the verse comes. Where it says, all things that were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. There could be no ambiguity, no misunderstanding. He says it as clearly positively as he does negatively. That is, all things were made through him, everything. But in case you want to weasel out of that, in case you want to misunderstand that, the negative follows in which John says, without him was not anything made that was made. Therefore, it has to be by necessary consequent that Jesus Christ, this Logos, is absolute, unbounded, eternal, ineffable, incomprehensible, because he is not created. For all things that were created, anything that has ever been created was created through him. Therefore, he is not created. Therefore, he is eternal. Therefore, he is absolute. Therefore, he is unbounded. Therefore, his stamp is on everything. And only if John could have known what we know today, that he surely has surveyed his handiwork. And everywhere it says, Logos. For the word, we're told, was with God. And the word was God. That is, anything that can be measured or quantified or touched or tasted is not the eternal word. Anything that is finite by time or space is not the eternal word. Anything that is not God is not him. For the word was with God and the word was God. There is a beauty, a complexity, a distinction within an identity. That is, he was with God. He is distinct from God. But he is God. He is identical with God. And how could this be? This distinction with, but also identical as was God. He is with God, but he also was God. The hint, very next verse the beginning of next verse, the first word of the next verse, he. He was in the beginning. And he was with God. You see? Personality. Absolute, unbounded, eternal, ineffable personality. Person. More person than you and I. More real than you and I. 
more relatable than you and I. Constant in communication eternally with the Father and the Son. He was with God. That is, distinct from God by his person, but identical with God in his being. For John goes on to say, no one has ever seen God, the only God. He who is at the Father's side, that is with him, beside him, not him, but beside him, he has made it known. How do you know this God who you cannot see, taste, touch, or smell? Jesus makes the Father known. Therefore, he is information. Therefore, he is logos. He is the conveyance of the actual eternal God to us. That is why his name is word. And that is why any information that you cross in this world is his. That's why the Son is called the Word. This is all to the glory of Christ. And for the only purpose here this morning, sometimes people say, now where's the application? What do you want me to do? Nothing. Just knowing this is the application. His glory is the application. Just that you would know and that you would bow your knees and pray in a different way that you never did before. That you would trust him. That you would trust him in a way that you never did before. See, an absolute personal savior. No thing throughout the history of human intellectual thought has ever combined the absolute person together. Put absolute, unbounded, not a Higgs boson, not a logos of the Stoics, not a particular type of unity that is a form of Plato. None of this stuff, the shenanigans, the stuff that you have to get graded on in philosophy class. No. Absolute truth, but in a person who can be approached, who can be prayed, who loves you more than you love him. Who bases all of your life and all your moral imperfections and failures off his perfections and goodness. His personal goodness. That is, that is why he entered into this world. That the eternal Logos took on a temporal name. A name so humble and insignificant. But a name that will never be forgotten throughout the history of the world. Jesus of Nazareth. Where is Nazareth? A baby born in a manger. In a small town of Bethlehem, so much so that the people in Nazareth that we don't know about could look down on Bethlehem because it wasn't Jerusalem. Who cares? The eternal Logos, who is a person who loves, condescended in such a way to be wrapped, not the unbounded eternal God wrapped in swaddling clothes. Antinomy, paradox, wisdom of the gospel. That this is the wisdom John is beginning just to unfold. And all for what? Love. The sacrificial life. That this word became flesh. And that flesh went on a cross. So that his absolute goodness, that none of us can stand, that none of us arrive to, would in no small way be mediated by a personal imposition of the word in the flesh, on the cross. 
I have a friend that makes this all very real. In this past year, I had a conversation with him. You say, how does this apply? What does it mean? Oh, it means wonderful things. See, when I spoke with him, he said, now I cannot commit my life to God, to Christ. I'm uncomfortable. I don't know much about this religion stuff. And quite frankly, and he's being kind to me, I think, being polite. He's saying, I don't really do well with this faith idea. I'd rather have facts and things I know. That makes me comfortable. And I replied to him and I said, you cannot know anything fully unless you know something absolutely. You cannot know anything fully unless you know something absolutely because all things are related to everything. Unless you're a God, unless your name happens to be Word, you're always going to have to rely on faith. Because anything short of faith is omniscience with everything. Do you see? He wanted absolute certainty. But our gospel says here, John, to all who receive him and believe upon his name, he gave right to become children of God, born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but the will of God. That is, what do you do with this fact that you know? That the Logos is an absolute personality. is worthy of your trust. You know this so that you might receive him and believe upon him. For my friend was looking for absolute certainty, which is impossible. What we are given is personal certainty, which is faith. You'll never have absolute certainty about anything because you would have to know everything. But he relates to us in our weakness. And this gospel, if you do not despise it, is this. Take whatever certainty you have personally and give it to that logos. That's called faith. Because if you have personal certainty in an absolute personality, you're saved. You don't have to know everything to have everything. Therefore, there is no way to the Father except through the Son. Amen. Dear Father God, we understand that if we wait until we're better, we will never come at all. Come weary, heavy laden, lost and ruined by the fall. If you tarry till you're better, you will never come at all. Dear Father, we know that if we wait for omniscience, we will die in our ignorance. So we trust in your Son, who is our light, who is our life. Father, we pray particularly, I ask selfishly, for this ministry, us at New Life, our country for revival, reformation, particularly for us, Lord, even this Christmas season, that you would draw the nations by your light. 
that they would humble themselves and trust in the one who has condescended so that he might be truly known. In Jesus' name we pray with all the power of the eternal Logos. Amen.